Welcome to the Pool Nation Podcast, where it's all pool talk. And we ain't talking about netting and jetting or splashing and dashing. We're talking about becoming a nation of pool pros. We talk about the latest products, trends, and training in the pool industry. Now let's welcome your host. With over a decade of industry insider experience and still the reigning champion of Marco Polo, Edgar De Jesus, and his co-host, John J.J. Flawless, the fastest netter in the West, and Zach the Pool Boy Nicholas. stayed in the the spa world for it sounds like a long time but it was you mentioned uh a while back that uh you started looking at at pools and that was what prompted you to uh uh, spend so much time with the service technician brian smith right right and um obviously tremendous practical experience what would how would you characterize the understanding of uh of water chemistry in the service industry at that point? Uh, you well, know. it was, um, there were a couple of things that amazed me when I got into the pool industry. One of them was the fact that almost universally, everybody was only checking pH and alkalinity. I mean, pH and chlorine. And that was it. And they were using the OTO reagent. They weren't even using DPD, and many of the service techs were doing what we call flash testing. They dropped and this it in. Was, this was where you put a drop of chemical right in the pool and see if it changes. At this point in my career, I was going to Ipsa meetings. I was going to the old swimming pool trades and contractors association in Glendale, and we were just going to anybody that had a meeting of service techs or pool people, we were going to it. And we were going to the NSPI meetings, we we're going to IPSA meetings, Cal IPSA meeting, you know, they weren't merged yet. And so we were going everywhere trying to gather information, get ourselves known. And we would go to these things. And then, you know, a few days later, some guy would say, you know, I saw you at the IPSA meeting the other night, I got this problem. And so I became kind of a, a problem solver guy. And the word got out and people started calling me up saying, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? And even though it was not spas, but it was service techs, I kept giving out this information to people to help them. We just, we went everywhere. But the bottom line was that these guys were only checking for pH and chlorine and they were using OTO. And there wasn't any way to know if they had any combined chlorine. Some of these guys actually had a holster on their belt for the two bottles of reagent so they could kind of like quick draw and drop it into the pool and see if there was any chlorine or not. The service techs were even telling me, oh, I can taste when the pH is wrong. And I'm going, really? <laughs> you, can, you can dip your hand in the pool and taste the water and tell me what the pH is? You know, and... I set up a, at a seminar I gave one time, I set up a tank, an aquarium with 10 gallons of water in it, 
and invited everybody to come up and flash test it. And not one person came close to what was in there. You know, and the, it demonstrated that they really don't know what they're doing if you're flash testing. And I really remember a seminar I gave, and we're talking about pH, alkalinity, calcium hardness, and I was about to start talking about cyanuric acid. And one of the guys in the front said, can you tell me again what this aqualinity stuff is? And I was like, aqualinity? Really? That's what you heard me say? I said, yeah, isn't that what you said? Aqualinity? I said, no. I said, alkalinity. He said, yeah, what is that? And people started throwing things at him because he said, you know, you've been sitting there listening to Mr. Lowry say, I'll talk to you about alkalinity for about 20 minutes. And then later you come up and ask him what aqualinity is. You know, it's like, pay attention. Maybe so, too much time out in the sun for that guy. Somebody, <laughs> yeah, somebody's had one too many cervezas. Anyway, the, there was a lot of practices in those days that were just, you know, that blew me away. I said, how can you take care of a pool this way? You know, and I go to pool stores and I go in and I go, how do I take care of my pool? And they go, well, you measure the pH and the chlorine. And then when you have a problem, you come in and bring me some water. And I go, what is all this stuff in your store? I go, well, that's when you have problems. And I go, so how come we're taking care of pools wrong? How come you need this store full of stuff for problems if you're taking care of the pool right? And they were like, well, that's the way we take care of pools. And then you have problems. I go, well, that doesn't sound right. I'm not from this industry, but that doesn't sound right. So a lack of sort of almost preventive the concept that you avoid problems. <laughs> yes. It was like, test the water and see how bad it is. And when it's really bad, buy another chemical. You know, and it was, <clears throat> and I was just like, wow, how do we get on top of this? You know, in the spa thing, we had the advantage because nobody knew how to take care of a spa. So when you gave them a pamphlet that said, here's how to do it, the three-day-a-week program, well, the first thing it says is take your test strip, dip it in the water, and see what the pH, the alkalinity, and the free chlorine are, and adjust the pH and alkalinity, and then add some chlorine, and then add some spot and clear. That was day one. Day two, you did nothing. Day three, you repeated day one, except instead of spot and clear, you added spa defender, and you put that in the water. And then day three, you did day one over again. And it was a three day a week program. We had it in a little blue booklet and uh, we had actually, I kept track of it. We had actually printed and distributed over 1 million copies of that blue book. We used to give them out to anybody that wanted them. Here's how to take care of your spa. And it wasn't, it, there was no diagrams. There was nothing in it. It was just words in a pamphlet. And the book was like eight pages long. Now, of course, the target audience there are consumers at that point, right? Yes, it was. But, um, you know, service techs kept asking me, I go, you know, it's, it's impossible to take care of a spa one time a week. You can't do it. And I still maintain that today. You can't do it one time a week. It's impossible. The first time four people get in the spa, you're out of chlorine. And, and you're out of chlorine probably 15 minutes after they get in which could be deemed an inherently hazardous situation well, of from course, a biological you know, guess, standpoint. 
gives bacteria a whole week to grow in culture in body temperature water. You know, I mean, it's, it's a, a severe problem. That's one of the reasons we say every time you get out of this spa, put in an ounce of, of dichlor. Was this around the time, like you're getting into the, the 80s, the mid 80s, you're, you're turning your attention towards pools, going to IPSA meetings. Were trichlor tabs coming on around then? Was that well, trichlor tabs for pools, um, I researched this because I wrote about it, but trichlor tabs came into the industry in 1956. Oh, okay. And so they had been around for some time. And frankly, when they were introduced, they caught the rest of the industry unaware. And the rest of the industry was Cal Hypo and liquid. And all of a sudden they had these tablets and the rumors started about they would cause cancer. They would destroy your equipment, you know, so because they didn't have anything that was like that and they didn't have anything to sell against it. And so all of the rumors started flying about how bad they're going to be for you. But the bottom line was that prior to the introduction of tablets and the introduction of cyanuric acid as a separate chemical, people had to put chlorine in their spa once a day or their pool once a day. And with the advent of cyanuric acid, it meant you could, you could put chlorine in once a week. And when did, and when did then, cyanuric acid come on the scene in that application? Well, as a cyanuric acid and trichlor came, came along about the same time. The first introduction was, was cyanuric acid by itself. And then very quickly after that, Monsanto started making tabs of trichlor. And it caught the industry just unaware. And it was a great thing because people could get chlorine in their pool every day. And as far as they, everybody was concerned, cyanuric acid wasn't a problem. And all, you know, they didn't worry about buildup or anything because they said, there's no problem with too much in your water because it doesn't do anything. So it didn't matter if the CYA built up. We now know that that's not so, but the only rumor that persisted was that you could use trichlor long enough that it would lock up all your chlorine and create what's called chlorine, chlorine lock. lock. Yeah. And, and frankly, there is no such thing as chlorine lock, but you can get down pretty close. I'll have to admit, you can get to the point where there's only about 1% of your chlorine that's doing any good in the pool. So you can get to that point, but that's not necessarily locking up your chlorine. Is it fair to say that concept exists, though, as a sliding scale, as the concentration rises? You say you're you maybe locking 100%. It's like you can never reach the speed of light, but you can move in that direction. So Yeah, the, I don't think you could ever get to 100% locked up. But do understand this, that when you get above 30 parts per million of cyanuric acid, for the most part, you're looking at 97% of the chlorine being bound to cyanuric acid and only 3% of it doing any good in the water. And this is a chemical fact. So it's not my opinion, it's the fact. I have a grand spreadsheet that I use that can give you that percentage number at any given pH, cyanuric acid, and chlorine level. 
those three things change the percentage from 3% up or down. But once you get up to about 100 parts per million of cyanuric acid in the water, you're pretty much dealing with about 1% of the chlorine being available. So getting back to our timeline here, you've had this tremendous success with leisure time. You're turning your attention to pools. And in 85, was it that you started Service Industry News? Yeah, we, so, we started Service Industry News and I think it was September or October of 85. So you bring this years of experience to that point in your career. Of course, there's the famous story about you and uh, Mr. Dickman, David Dickman, former editor of Pool and Spa News at that time, hanging out in a spa. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and you came up with this idea. Talk a little bit about that progression where you, you go from you know, selling product, promoting information to sell product, and then wanting to get into publishing to kind of educate the whole industry. Not well, you know, what, what happened was at one point, Leisure Time Chemical was the largest advertiser for pool and spa news. And I had been giving seminars weekly to service techs on how to take care of pools. And I kept telling Steve Field and David Dickman about doing articles for service techs. And Jules Field was one of those guys like, you know, you can be the editor, but you have to pass everything by me first. Yeah, I noticed <laughs> that about him. <laughs> and, and, my you former know, boss. And yes, I have my wife's permission to say I'm the head of the household. You know? <laughs> so anyway, um, I kept after him and so did Stan to do some articles for Service Tech. And Jules said, there's no future in doing anything for service techs. They don't buy anything. They're not advertisers. Nobody wants to reach them. So we're not doing anything. And I kept after him to do it. And I kept, you know, I kept after David to try to do something. And he said, every time I approach Jules, he says, no, no dice, nothing doing. And so, you know, some time later, David, he just decided to leave as the editor. And he and I had grown into a friendship and we actually became really good friends as a, as a result of a happening in, I forget whether it was 29 Palms or Palm Springs or somewhere out that direction. NSPI had one of their fall gatherings where they had a golf tournament and, you know, awards and things like that, that they gave for the, the local chapter of the NSPI. And they held a trivia tournament using the trivia game. And David and I got to be partners. Oh boy. And <laughs> turns out <laughs> between, between David and I, there was not too much we didn't know. And, <laughs> and we, we won that competition. And then he and I actually went on a number of, won a number of tournaments playing trivia to the point where they changed the rules that two people that work for the same company can't be on the same team because we would literally get to a game. And even though there were four people on a, on a team, 
we would just say, okay, you guys start. And as soon as you miss, you may as well just fold because we won't miss any questions after that. And they thought we were cheating and they thought all kinds of stuff. And they even brought a brand new game out one time. We still, so anyway, um, David and I had become pretty close friends and he told me he was leaving Pool and Spa News and he came over to, to dinner one night. And then after dinner, I had a, a nice pool and a separate spa that was pretty large. And we sat in my spa for a couple of hours. And we did that on a number of occasions. And one night I said, well, David, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I think I'm going to go write the, you know, all-American great novel. And I thought, yeah, you and every other writer, you know. And I said, well, you know, isn't that expensive? You know, I mean, we live in Los Angeles, right? You know, you're not going to have income for a year or two while you write it. Have you got money to promote it? You know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well. No, and I said, well, you need to make some money. And he said, I'm not able to save too much money when I'm working for somebody. I said, that's because you're working for somebody and not for yourself. You need to start a business, make your own money. And he was like, oh, well, okay. So we just kept talking a little further and further. And at the time, there was a publication called Dealer News. It was out of Texas. Yeah, I remember Dealer News. Right. And it was a newspaper that they gave away free. And it was pretty much backed and owned by a distributor down there. And I don't remember the guy's name or the distributor. But anyway, he was doing pretty good with his newspaper. And so I said, I've always tried to, to get you to produce articles that I write in your magazine. You won't do it. I said, what if we started a paper like Dealer News that we could give away for free? And give it to service techs. Nobody's, nobody cares about service techs. We'd have a wide open field. And, you know, one thing just led to another. And we said, yeah, I think we could do that. So I said, well, I'll put up half and you put up half. How much have you got? And he told me, and I, I said, well, I'll match that. And I had just sold leisure time. <laughs> and so I said, well, you know, I'll put that up and we'll start a newspaper, see how it goes. So we started it. And we had a couple of ideas, too, about, about how to do things. The first one was that we wanted a white background monitor. And it had to be special ordered, because if you might remember back in 1985, all the monitors were either green or orange on a black background or gray background. And so we wanted so one so we could see. We bought a program called SuperPage for putting it out, because there wasn't anything like using your word processor or, or InDesign or something like that. Now, there wasn't anything like that. And then David said, well, we're going to have to get this typeset. And I said, what if we don't get a typeset? If we use SuperPage and put it out on, even though it's going to be a, a tabloid-sized newspaper, we could put it out on two sheets of paper, each page landscaped, and then glue the pieces of paper together on a board and let them shoot from the board to make the negative to print the paper. And he said, they could do that. And I said, let's go ask the printer. So we went to a, a printer that was close to where we we're going to start our business, talked to the guy, he said, I've never tried to shoot from a laser output, but you know, if you're going to use 300 DPI and, and it's black on white, I don't see why we couldn't. So we've, we mocked up a couple of pages and he set up his press to 
to shoot a couple pages out. And he shot it out. And I looked down. I said, well, that looks great. And, you know, David had said, we're going to have to spend about $2,000 a month on typesetting. And I said, well, now we don't have to. You know, no typesetting. And we'll get people to send us their artwork uh, in black and white. And if they want color, it'll have to be on these two pages. And so David and I did service industry news. I wrote every article uh, that was technical. David and I, I usually wrote it myself and then David edited it. But sometimes David, believe it or not, was fast enough at typing that he could almost type as fast as I could talk. And that was a bonus because by then, just like now, if you ask me a, a chemical question, I can answer it for you. And I don't have to look anything up. It's already in my head. So David could do, we could do an article by me simply starting with a subject. And he would say, well, tell me about this or what about that? And I just start answering questions. And then we'd rearrange that article, that thing into a nicely packaged article. And so those are uh, some long articles, those early service industry news chemistry articles. I yeah, mean. they were about 4,000 words. Yeah. And then we eventually backed up to, I think, to about 2,500. But uh, yeah, we were, they were pretty long. But I was um, intrigued by the fact that you went with the tabloid newsprint. You know, this was a time in magazines where everything was glossy with heavy gauge paper and perfect bound spines. And, you know, the idea was to go, you guys went in the other direction. It was like, was that a calculated thing? Like this would really work in a working man? Yeah, because, kind of you know, I thought these are service techs. And my original idea was that we would get subscribers by simply taking a stack of these papers and leaving them at every one of the distributors in Southern California. And they would stand there waiting for their order. They'd pick up a copy of the paper and go, wow, this is great. You know, and I know Bob because he talks around a lot. And they'd cut out the thing and send it to us for a new subscription. There wasn't any way to do it online. People would have to mail us in a little form for a subscription. And the newspaper was free. And we decided that we would come out twice a month so there would be 24 issues a year. And that I said, as long as I owned it, that it would be free to service techs. And we kept it that way. It was supported entirely by advertising. Yeah, that's how the magazines I've worked for have always worked, actually. You don't trade magazines. Yeah, you want to build your readership. And so you make it free and you're supported by advertisers. But building that subscription list is a real challenge. Well, uh, it was, and we originally started with, with 1,500 names that we were given from IPSA, and we started with that as our basis, and then we just grew, and at the height of when David and I owned it, uh, we had 16,000 circulation, so we, we grew from 1,500 to 16,000, and we also grew from an average page count of 20 to an average page count of 34. So and, the advertising uh, and the readership. And, and then the advertising went from about, you know, 20% in the beginning up to about, was right near 50% in the end. We were doing pretty good, but we just, we eventually, after writing articles for five years, I was becoming more of a journalist than I was a chemist. 
and uh, the business was taking more time to run as a business because David didn't have, David was an editor and didn't really have any business uh, experience. So I was kind of writing the articles. I was trying to run the business and keep the books. And in the meantime, I was trying to keep the sales department going. And so between all of those three or four jobs, I was tapped out most days. And, and it was doing something that I, I no longer enjoyed doing. I was spending way too much time doing that and not enough time being a chemist. And my idea and David's idea changed over about five years. And instead of growing it up to sell it, at the end of about five years, David said, I'd like to keep it. And so instead of hiring more writers and more people in the office and stuff, David kept telling me he would do it. And we'd keep the money in house that way. And I just, we just kind of differed on, you know, I still wanted to grow it up and sell it. I did not want to keep on doing what I was doing and just be more of it because more of it didn't sound like what I wanted to do, you know? And so I just told him that, you know, I'm tired of it and we kind of grew apart and the, you know, it wasn't functioning the way it did before. And so I just told him literally I want out. So we agreed on some terms and two years later, uh, he owned it. And it continues to this day. Yes, unfortunately for a few years, all he did was recycle what I wrote. That kind of gave it a bad taste in some people's mouth because they look for it for new stuff. And all it was was recycled stuff recycled articles and i think he lost a lot of readership you know as a career journalist i seek out the the technical guys and that's what you use as, as the basis you know it's of course it's easier if you have that yourself in house but you became a, a source for other publications and other companies after that i mean that experience the service industry news years you know, like I said earlier, it was a very heady time uh, because you were connecting with an audience that no one had paid attention to. Yes, and and, and it was good. They they enjoyed it. They looked, you know, every time I went someplace to say, hey, I saw your latest article on this or that. Thank you. It's great. You know, guys saying I clip the articles and put them in a book. And a lot of times they would say, well, why don't you put it in a format so I can photocopy it better you know i thought would you did you ever hear copyright laws you know but uh, anyway um you know it it was a learning time for me too david learned from me pool chemistry because you know he would ask the questions that normal service techs and so on ask and so that's how we wrote the articles so he gained the knowledge about the chemistry. And in the meantime, I learned about typesetting and formatting and page layout and all those kinds of things that I didn't know anything about. We would write it all up. And I was the guy that actually cut up the pieces of paper and put them onto the board so they could make the negatives. You were the paste-up artist. I was a paste-up guy. And and even that, I figured out a way to do that that was, that was incredible. I used a spray-on glue 
that I sprayed the back of each page and I pasted it onto the board. And then I used an X-Acto knife and a self-healing mat and I cut the pages so that they would fit exactly correctly. And I cut the borders off of the pages and stuck it on so that you couldn't tell where the two pages were glued, were glued together. And uh, the printer used to send people over and say, you got to watch how these guys put out a newspaper. You won't believe it. And then even the company's super page that made the, the layout and design for the page program, uh, they sent people over too, saying these guys are using this to print a newspaper and, and they're going direct to print from it. And they were all amazed that we were doing this stuff, just two guys. Well, I tell you, the whole, that whole thing has really changed. <laughs> So yeah, you well know, now I, yeah, I remember rubber cement and exacto blades and and typesetting and stripping uh, film. I mean, it used to be quite the uh, cumbersome process. Now, of course, everything's direct to plate, and you just yeah lay it out. During this time, also, th this was is it fair to say that during those that eighty five the period of service industry news that this is from my perception, it seems like this is when you really become the go-to instructor, you know, because you're exposed, you're going to all these trade shows, you've got a, a, a publication as a communication platform, you're increasing your outreach, uh, the service industry is organizing more at this point yeah. in time. And so it's all kind of like the pieces come together and you, again, are the timing, you're the guy in this spot that becomes like the really primary lead educator for all things chemical at that point in time, which. Yeah, except that, you know, um, it's like being a hero, you know, you don't recognize it at the time. You only recognize it afterwards. I did not realize that I was that until a couple of years later when a few people pointed out to me, hey, you know, you realize, of course, that you're, you're the guy. And I go, no, I don't. You know, I'm just going along giving out information and, and helping people. And that's what motivates me and not trying to be the number one guy. You know, I wasn't consciously trying to do that. And I wasn't aware that I might be the lead guy. I, I wasn't aware of that at the time. Well, you know, there's a good-looking woman keeps walking by. Yes. I, we should point out that your place is not haunted. That's right. And, yeah. How, how yeah, there is a doing? doorway back there, <laughs> and most of the time my, my wife is trekking by the door, but we also have a cleaning person that comes in and cleans the, the house uh, every day. So, um, if, and if you didn't hear from the beginning, I live in Lima, Peru, and so um, uh, things are slightly different here, but the good news is that, uh, that we can afford a, what's called an empleado, and it's a person that comes in every day and, and takes care of things in the house. He doesn't take care of meals, but he does practically everything else, so he's a good handyman and, and a good cleaner and so on, so... Well, this person walking by is definitely female, so that's got to be Sylvia. Yeah, that wouldn't be anybody else. So okay. my, my mother-in-law lives downstairs, but 
She's oh. <laughs> had both, both knees replaced, and for her to get upstairs is, a, not hiking up is, is a major, major production. What year did you and David uh, part ways with Service Industry News? I think it was right around 1990. So um, I think we had the paper for five years, and then it took him a couple more years to pay me off. But the split was not a not amicable, but there wasn't any leftover business, so it wasn't necessarily a problem, except that when I send him articles to run in his paper, he wouldn't run them. And I, I really felt bad about that. Not for, I felt bad about it for the service techs because I, I write articles for the service techs and he had a vehicle to get it to them. They wouldn't run it. And then even after David sold it and had the three sisters or whoever they are running service industry news, they didn't want to run anything from me either. That kind of was injurious because my goal has only been education and not, you know, who did what, but just get the information to the right people that need it. It kind of hurt. And I started, you know, looking at other places to give my articles to them. Well, one of those places was Pool and Spa News. I was the technical editor at that point in time. And we started right. doing a, a thing called uh, Tech Corner that we did for uh, two, three years together. Yeah, I think and a bunch um, of those things. I think when Jules asked me to do that, I think originally we called it Lab Notes, and then we Was called it, it Tech Notes? Corner. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, Jules right. had definitely changed his tune about wanting to reach the uh, service <laughs> industry. Yeah, and I think he wanted to. I think, frankly, Jules wanted to piss David off because David, I formerly owned Service Industry News, and he hired me to write a column. And I think he just wanted to kind of turn the knife a little bit for David. <laughs> well, that would not come as a surprise if that was part of his motivation. Jules was an extraordinarily uh, competitive individual. Yes. Uh, I learned a lot from that guy working for him. I was there for five years. Yeah. And uh, it was a real education in what business-to-business -business niche publishing was all about. <laughs> and, and he took it so deadly serious and was very passionate about it. And there were definitely people he didn't like, you know? Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I wasn't one of them. I was, I was treated very fairly and well when I was, when I was there and uh, had a great time. So the period after that opens up all sorts of things. For you, you continue publishing books. You're consulting with multiple companies. Towards the end of, of owning Service Industry News, I was doing some consulting with Leslie's. And they didn't have a technical director. And they asked me if I would say once a month or so, come to their place and be the guy that would pass my blessing on new chemical products that they were approached to sell. I would go to their place once a month and they would say, this company came to us with this new chemical. Should we sell it? This chemical is one we found out about, or people ask, or have been asking us for this chemical. Whose chemical do you think we should get? And that kind of thing. And so once a month, I would spend a, a few hours with them deciding on which helping them decide on which chemicals were okay to handle or not. So 
I did that. And I was also doing some consulting with Dell Industries. And Dell had just changed ownership, went from private to being held by a holding company. And they had a new president. His name was Dennis. And uh, at a trade show, I met him. And he actually made me an offer to go to work for them. And it was enough of an offer where I said, okay. So in 1990, I actually went to work for Dell Industries. Did you move um, to San Luis Obispo? Well, I was going to. I commuted for a while. And I lived in Chino Hills. And Chino Hills Ooh. to San Luis Obispo was a, <laughs> was a trick. Yeah, it but, is. But I would go up there on Sunday night and come back on Friday <clears throat> or leave on Friday to go back home. But I did that for a while. But And I actually made an offer on a house in San Luis Obispo that had a beautiful view of the ocean. It was going to be a pretty cool house. But That's I still a beautiful had some part money of the from, world. <laughs> yeah, it, I still had some money from the Leisure Time Chemical sale. And, and I thought, gee, a house by the ocean would just be pretty cool. So, that would. so I thought about that, and Dell at the time was a little top-heavy in personnel, and so the unfortunate part was that Dennis and I had to originally be kind of hatchet men for some people, and that's a very distasteful thing to do, is have to let some people go, and, and they just had too many people working for them was the problem, and so we had to trim that down a bit. And then we had started to, to do some things. And I was, uh, I was in Japan uh, selling some ozone to the Tokyo American Club over there when I heard that they were letting Dennis go because I guess he didn't perform fast enough and they were installing a new president. And I knew the new president and I knew that there was no way that I could get along with him. We just had totally different styles. So I turned in my resignation from Tokyo. And when I got back, I went and collected my stuff and we kind of passed in the hall. And he said, I wish you'd give this a chance. And I said, you know, you're a great guy and you've got your style and I'm okay with that, but I don't think you and I can really work together, I'm sorry. And he said, well, if you change your mind, let me know. And so I didn't. And literally, I was on the way home from San Luis Obispo to Chino Hills, and I stopped in at Leslie's in Chatsworth. And I, I was talking to Charlie, and Charlie said, how's it going? I said, well, I just resigned at Dell Industries. He said, really? I said, yeah. He said, we'd like to talk to you. <laughs> so I was literally unemployed for about six hours. <laughs> <laughs> So Leslie's oh, so that's a pretty offer. good turnaround. Good, nice that you decided to stop in. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was really interesting because I came back and talked to another guy that was a VP, and the three of us talked for a while. And I, when I left the meeting, I said, you know, I don't know if I can work for anybody else. I've worked for myself my whole life, and I really don't know if I can do this. And they took that to mean that I was negotiating and I was being honest. <laughs> and, and as a result, once I got home a couple of hours later, they called me and offered me more money. And when I finished the conversation with them, I said, you know, I'm telling you 
it's, it's a very generous offer, but I really do not know if I can work for somebody else. I don't know that. And I said, so I have to, I have to think about it. And so the next day, they called me and offered me more money. <laughs> and this got to be a game. Eventually, they... Um, uh, was that you making that noise on your end? Yeah, it was. My phone was ringing. I forgot to turn it off. This so anyway, they kept three times. They called me back and offered me more money. And finally, it was so much money. I said, okay, <laughs> but I need a laboratory and I need this much equipment and this much stuff. And they kept saying, okay. And so they built me a lab and put in everything I wanted. And I still lived in Chino Hills and commuted every day to, to Leslie's. Was that but, in Chatsworth? Yeah, Chatsworth. And I told them that I would not be there at eight o'clock in the morning every day, that it would be more like 10 because I didn't want to spend two hours in traffic. And so as it was, if I left my house at nine, it would take me exactly one hour to get to Chatsworth. And if I left at eight, I'd still get there at 10. Right, so, right. <clears throat> you the know, magic of Southern California traffic. Yeah. So and if, I left at six, if I left at six, I get there at nine, you know, so it, just, right, right. it was it was awful. So I came in at 10, but I didn't leave until six. And then I get home at seven or seven thirty or something like that. So I did that. And eventually I moved out to Moore Park. And then that made it easier to get to Chatsworth. But so I worked for Leslie's for five years and I was their technical director and I was also their safety director, their compliance uh, officer with EPA to make sure that all of their algicides and pesticides and chlorine products were registered. I did the state registrations. We set up a safety program. We set up safety meetings. We started creating a, a, an in-store notebook it was a technical bulletin notebook um, where I would issue about once a month, I would issue a tech bulletin. And in those days, they would, we would physically send it to them and they would put it in the book. And so we eventually had a book with, with about 30 articles in it that were all uh, indexed and everything. So that in the store, if they had a problem, they could look it up instead of calling me. Because after I got to Leslie's, as soon as all the stores found out we had a chemist, all the stores called, started calling me. And I got a customer with this, and I got a customer with that. What do I do? And I was like, you know, I can't be the answer guy all day long for 350 stores. You know, that isn't the way this is going to work. So the, what I did was I kept a, a notepad by my phone. And every time I talked to somebody, I would mark down the subject and keep a little, you know, crosshatch of how many times I got asked the same question. And then at the end of a month, I'd take the one or two top ones and write an article and send it out to the stores so that I could whittle that list down. Then when a store called me and said, I have a water clarity problem, I could say, you know, you need to look in chapter two, page 12, and there's an article about that. Stop calling me. <laughs> Did they ever think about doing like, you know, training for we did people. training videos we made training videos in those days now of course they're easy to do but in those days uh we had to do the camera and the you know the studio kind of thing and i made uh, two four-hour training videos 
that are I, they still, I, I, I don't know if they're still using them, but they are good training videos that most of which would still be appropriate today. How much do you think our understanding, your understanding of uh, applicable water chemistry has has changed? You know, what are some of the big leaps that we've made during your time, other than getting people to stop flash testing and realizing well, what think, alkalinity is? But I think DPD was a big a big step. Getting them to check alkalinity was a big step. Even calcium hardness testing was a a fairly large step. And even now, cyanuric acid testing is right up there with pH and chlorine. You know, guys are starting to look at cyanuric acid levels. And, and I see in the, in the Facebook groups and blogs and stuff where people are saying, you know, you got water problems that one of the first two or three things they tell people, tell each other, your cyanuric acid's too high. And you would have never heard that years ago. Nobody even talked about cyanuric acid and the problems that there are with it. So I think the awareness of cyanuric acid is a big thing. And of course, borate is just a huge game changer, at least for me. And I, I don't make a penny if you put borate in your pool, but I can guarantee you there are real advantages to putting borate in your pool that are, they're one of the best chemicals you could ever put in your pool, frankly. It doesn't change anything except the fact that it prevents algae and it doesn't kill algae. So you can't use it as an algicide, but you can use it as an algistat to prevent algae. And you don't have to check it, but maybe once every month or two months or a couple of times a year. So it's not a chemical you have to check every week. You put it in once and you're done. And then, because it's preventing algae, you won't need to buy algicides. You won't need phosphate removers. You won't need to shock because you got algae. So it prevents algae. It keeps the pH from going up. And it doesn't stop it, but it slows it down. And it doesn't go up as high or as fast. So the advantage is those two things. It doesn't it allows the pH not to rise, and it keeps the, the algae from getting started in the pool, which saves chlorine. So not only do you not have to buy any of the algicides or phosphate removers, now you don't even need to, you, you use less chlorine to keep a residual in your pool because the, the borate's doing the part of it that the chlorine would have had to do. Had to do. So I think it's a, a huge chemical that belongs in every pool, uh, even commercial pools. So those have been game changers as far as I can see. Just more awareness of people wanting to test everything. You know, I think it's been a surprise to one company will mention their name. The Lamotte company makes a spin touch. And it's kind of the gold standard for, for testing because of, you know, it's, there's no operator error. There's nothing you can do to change anything. And it gives you the results in one minute for eight or 10 tests. So it's, a, it's really a game changer that way. But I think it's surprised the Lamont company that so many service guys are buying it. And I think they thought it would be stores and yes, there's stores are buying it, but a lot of service techs are buying that. Service techs 
checking eight things in water is exponentially better than it was 40 or 50 years ago. When they were testing two? Yes, when they were <laughs> testing two. And, you know, I mean, when I got in this industry, people were flash testing and testing only phenol red and OTO and throwing trichlor tablets in the skimmer. You know, they weren't even using the feeders that we had. There was only a couple of companies making the inline uh, feeders and a couple of companies making floaters. Now there are more, but, you know, now that we understand cyanuric acid better, I see people using trichlor less uh, so that the cyanuric acid doesn't build up as much because there are definite problems when you get the cyanuric acid up too high. And of course, I do think also that the saturation index, whether you use the calcium saturation index or the Langelier saturation index, I think that has been something that I kept harping on a lot of my career for guys to start testing and using the saturation index as a way of predicting whether their water uh, is scale forming or corrosive or balanced. And they didn't have a way of doing that before we started using these, these uh, indices. I think I've helped uh, usher in the use of the saturation index in our industry. That was a big push when I came on. But I, that was an, actually a, a cutting edge idea that around 1989 and 90. Uh, and people were, there was an aha moment for the industry, it seemed like, you know, that yeah. there was a way to calculate, you know, there was a, an answer after the equal sign of a negative one, a, a zero, a plus one, you know, and people could relate to that and take it, it condensed all these factors into a single value. Yes. That, that made sense. Yes, and, and the problem, the, the problem that surfaced right about that time was the effect of cyanuric acid on the saturation index calculation. And there were guys like John Wodowitz that um, studied and, you know, are far greater chemist and mathematician than I could ever be uh, that figured things like that out and said, you know, there really is an effect here and we need to be adjusting for it. The problem, unfortunately, is like with most chemists, they produce something and then when they gather more information, they produce an update. And unfortunately, that original LSI got updated four or five times and people got a little bit confused about which numbers and which things they should be using. And, and then people saying, well, it only matters if you're calculating the LSI anyway. The cyanuric acid really doesn't matter towards your pool anyway. So, it, you know, unless you're calculating LSI, it doesn't matter. So there were the kind of naysayers against that and people that were confused that just decided to do nothing. And that kind of stalled it a little bit. But um, I think everybody's pretty much on board now with using an LSI. And then we had the equipment manufacturers coming along. And they started using the Reisner index. Mm -hmm. and, and it was a completely different index that was favorable for equipment instead of favorable for plaster. And so they could point their fingers and say, 
well, yeah, you've got a good LSI, but you know, you've got you've got a bad Reisner here, you know, and that's why your equipment's failing. I don't know. I don't know if that's a a, a loophole to crawl through, or you know, whether there's just a difference of opinion. But perhaps their engineers like that one better, and the chemists like the LSI better. I don't know. But anyway, there's been some confusion over that, which has led some people just to not use it or not think it's important, but I do think it's an important uh, thing for predicting whether your water's okay or not. All this ties into this movement to try to prevent plaster problems, you know, the formation of the Plasters Council, and that really has become quite the uh, lightning rod in some cases, you know, for, yes. is it the plaster, is it the water, is it the application technique, you know. Uh, yes, and there's everybody pointing fingers at each other over, you know, when there's a problem, with a pool, somebody's saying it's the plasterer's problem, and somebody, no, it's the water problem. And they just keep pointing fingers. In the interim, you know, the homeowner's the guy that gets screwed. He's sitting there saying, it's not my fault. One of you guys need to figure out whose fault it is. And then that's where everything comes into play with the two factions, uh, the people like the Nasta National Plasters Council saying one thing, and people that at on balance, perhaps saying something else, and then somebody redoing some tests, or at least taking a meta look at some of the discussion over the test results that were, and concluding something different. And so you still have this question mark over, you know, was it troweled wrong? Was it somebody used too much water in the troweling? Did they rewater it? Did they put too much calcium in it? They're just one thing after another and everybody's saying it's somebody else's fault. And the problem is we're hurting ourselves by not figuring it out. And in the end, the homeowner suffers, you know, and probably says, well, this is the last pool I'm going to build with the average guy changing home every five to seven years. You don't want people saying that's the last pool I want to own. That isn't a good thing. So my goal has always been to make water chemistry easy, to make it understandable, and to have homeowners say, I own a pool, you should get one, instead of I own a pool, but the chemistry perplexes me. And this is what's happening. People are saying, I feel like the pool store is in charge of my pool. And we don't want that. You know, we want to, the store should be there to sell people what they need to take care of their pool, not dictate to them what they do need. And guys are saying, I don't understand. I go to the pool store, they tell me I need this. I put it in my pool. Two weeks later, I come back and I, I got to do something else. We're not doing this right if we're doing that. You know, we should have people coming in just buying chlorine and maintenance chemicals and, and not having problems every two weeks that they need $100 or $200 worth of chemicals. We're not doing it right. And, and frankly, we're just pissing off the homeowners. And that doesn't sell pools. That doesn't make our industry bigger. So, you know, it I, sounds like a lot of this wisdom and this evolution really comes to bear in the uh, Pool Chemistry Training Institute. It does. You know? It does. And you also, in that context, I've always been impressed with the idea of treating chemical values as a target rather than a range. 
Yes, and and that perhaps is one of my greatest ideas has been to get people to not look at chemical ranges, but to look at specific targets and make a target for every pool and start out with just a, a set of targets. And then if they don't work for you, make a couple of adjustments to the targets, but use targets. You know, and I use this example all the time. The PHTA standards are low pH is considered, or minimum pH is 7.2. Ideal is 7.4 to 7.6. And maximum is 7.8. So what is 7.3? You know, it's right between minimum and ideal. So is it okay or is it not okay? You know, and it's the exact same thing that the homeowners are doing and even service techs are doing. They're saying, what, what's, uh, is 7.3 okay or not? You know, and therefore they don't know. And so they just say, well, I guess if it's between 7.2 and 7.8, it's okay. And then it goes the same way for every other water condition. And you realize that the, the ranges are so broad that you can be within the range and have problems in your pool. So we've written a standard that can allow you to have problems. And so ultimately the standard is going to need to be changed or at least stated differently so that there isn't a minimum. There's just ideal ranges so that you can get more towards a target, but there shouldn't be maybe minimum and maximums. But that's the difference is if you have a target of 7.5 for your pH, and you test the water and it's 7.3, what do you do? You know exactly what to do, even if this is your first day at your pool. You raise the pH to 7.5, that's the target. I think the targets are ultimately the way that people need to do when they need to establish a target for all of their pools. I have a set of targets that we say are the best, and they pretty much are. And it's not influenced by any manufacturer or by any chemical. It's influenced by the fact this is the way to keep water. And if you miss it by a little bit, you're not going to be in trouble. But if you use a guideline and you miss it by a little bit, you can be in trouble. So follow the guidelines. And if you need to adjust the, the targets a little bit, adjust the targets to match your pool if you need to. Many people still don't understand that if your alkalinity is high, it's going to pull your pH up. So it's possible to balance the water according to LSI and have a perfectly balanced pool, but your pH is always going up. And your pH is always going up because your alkalinity is too high. So if you get the alkalinity back towards the target and the pH back towards the target, now your pH won't go up so much. So there's a difference between balancing for LSI and balancing it so that you have what I've referred to many times as a stable pool. And so if your pH and, and alkalinity and borate are in the uh, ranges that we, in the targets that we recommend, the pH won't go up or down. It'll remain that way. So that's the goal is to make the pool stable so that nothing changes. And that makes a job as a service tech easy because you go out there and all you have to do is make some minor changes to the chemistry 
add some chlorine and you're done. Then you can take care of the maintenance and you're gone. But if you have to go out there and, and start making chemical adjustments and adding two or three chemicals to the pool to get it adjusted right, you're spending a lot of time and money on something you don't need to. Well said. How long have you lived in Lima? Uh, this will be 11 years. Wow. Now, how long have you been married to Sylvia? 11 years. 11 years. So <laughs> is the thing like you came on vacation and stayed for the girl kind of thing? or No, believe it or not, um, it is an interesting short story about how Sylvia and I met. Okay. Um, many years ago in 2010, uh, 2009, I was reading an article because I used to get about a dozen trade publications for chemists uh, every month. And I go through the trade articles and read stuff. And I read an article about the amount of computing technology needed for role-playing games on a computer. And they were fairly new back then. I was reading about the computer technology of what it takes to make a role-playing game, which most people would recognize today as like World of Warcraft or Dungeons and Dragons or something like that, and or on their Xbox. Well, it's that kind of a game. And so I was reading about the technology, and the next day I went down to my computer in my office, which was a pretty, pretty leading edge computer, and I logged on to a couple of these games, and I got hooked playing a game. And it was called Dungeons and Dragons, and I got hooked playing this game. And in most of these games, you're a warrior or something, and I chose to be a warrior, and I was killing anything from a, a moth or a beetle up to a giant dragon. But in any case, I was killing things, and each time you kill something or go on a quest, you get more weapons or more power or more shields or whatever. And so I got to the point where in this game, you could get to level 190, no, 200. You could get to level 200, then you could be born again and go to level 200, and you could do four reborns. So they keep you playing forever. But at any rate, I got to level 50, and I would go and fight this monster for about 15 or 20 minutes, and he would beat me. And I would go back to the town, the little city they had, and I would kind of relax and recuperate, and then I would go back and try it again. And I kept getting getting beaten by this monster. Well, the game wants you to spend money on weapons. And I didn't want to spend the money. I wanted to beat the, I wanted to beat him without having to get any extra weapons. So I couldn't do that. So in the cities, you can chat with each other by typing. And so I was in this town and I asked this person if they could help me kill this monster. And this other person said, yeah, I can help you level up. No problem. So we go down the street to this, to where this monster was. And this other person says, is that the monster? And I said, yeah. And I said, it's taken me 20 minutes and it beats me. And, and this other person went doink and it died. And I said, and of course, when you join forces with them, you get the points and you get to level up. So I leveled up like two levels. When she went doink, I leveled up two levels. And the rest of the night, we went different places, and I leveled up to like 75 or 80 at, from 50 in one night with uh, their help. 
Yeah. So next night, this other person was there in the town. We went out. I actually leveled up to the point where I could get reborn. <laughs> so I got reborn, started over. And this was only in like three nights. And I thought, wow, this is cool. And so finally, I said, well, by the way, what level are you? And this other person said, 190. And I said, really? And she's, uh, she, I didn't know it was she at the time. Other person said, yeah, four reborns, 190. <laughs> she was almost at the end of the game as far as being the top top player almost. And um, so we started chatting more and playing the game less. And finally, I said, like, you know, who are you and where are you from and so on. And this just escalated in a pretty short period of time. I started playing the game in January. I met her in February. And on May 23rd, I came to Peru to meet her. You romantic and, devil. And when I left here, I asked her to marry me. <laughs> and and I went home and I told her, listen, it'll take me about six or eight months to settle my affairs in the U.S. and I'll uh, I'll be back. And she said, okay. So we continued to chat and things went faster at at me settling my affairs. And about a month later, I called her and I said, I'm going to wire you some money. Would you rent us an apartment? Because I'll be there in 30 days. And in July. On the 21st of July, I moved to Peru. And, so uh, February to July. <laughs> February to July, that was it. It's like five months. <laughs> yes. And my, my analytical mind kept telling me, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You're crazy. And my heart kept saying, go for it. And, you know, I was uh, almost 65 years old, and I thought, you know, for once in my life, I'm going to let my heart make the decision. And uh, it's been a, I don't know, she lights up my life is all I can say. Uh, even when I talk about her, I change expressions. You know, she uh, she just is a, a super person and we both love each other very much. And it was a totally serendipitous uh, meeting and uh that has had a fantastic outcome. It's I been, will never think of Dungeons and Dragons the same again. It yeah. wasn't Dungeons and Dragons, but it was similar it was a, to Dungeons. Oh, okay, okay. Gotcha. Uh, that is that's beautiful. That's a great story. And uh, your heart was right. It was. And, you know, it was easier for me to move here because I've been a consultant now for 24, <laughs> 25 years. As long as I've got a computer and a phone and an internet connection, I'm good. You know, I don't, I don't need to be, I could be anywhere and do what I do. So. Bob, this has been fabulous. We're going to. It's been pretty good. It's actually been two and a half hours. Yeah. It didn't seem like it, did it? No, it just sounded like a long phone call. (laughs) Hey guys, that was part two of the life of Bob Larry on his podcast. What a great story. We're here with Zach. We're here with Terry. We wanted to do a little tribute to Bob. He contributed so much. He gave so much to us, to me, Zach and John. He meant a, meant a lot because he came, he joined our podcast. He was one of the members of our crew. 
and we're deeply missing him, you know, with that void and being able to talk to him and being able to have him come on to our podcast and answer all the questions that everybody sent in. So we wanted to say a couple words. We wanted to bring Terry on. Terry was a very close friend to Bob and wanted to have him do a tribute to Bob. With that said, we will let Terry pick it up. Thanks, Edgar and uh, and and Zach. And um, wow, what a great um, you know the recordings and that podcast is just um, you know it's it's so awesome just to hear Bob kind of tell his story in his own words and. And what a story, you know, what a, what a guy, um, you know, I, uh, I go way back with Bob as far as sort of my initial, uh, meeting with him. I was a pool service tech in Southern California. I started out when I was like 21 years old, cleaning swimming pools in the Southern California area. I know at the, uh, pool nation awards and the lifetime achievement award, <laughs> I mentioned the fact that, you know, when I started doing pools, we didn't have internet. We didn't have all the things that are so readily available today. So getting just the knowledge and training was pretty much non-existent. It was almost like, you know, you got a brush, you got a net, you got a vacuum, you got some chemicals. And it was like, you know, there you go, <laughs> figure it out, you know. And it really was, uh, you know, took a lot of work. And, you know, that was the time, that was right at the time uh, Bob Lowry came on the scene. And he was, uh, he'd already developed products, so a, a couple of really cool, unique products, a polymer, you know, super blue. You know, Bob Lowry is really responsible for the reason we have spa specialty chemicals. Up until, you know, when he started, uh, you know, with his company and with Leisure Time Chemical, there was nothing that existed. And even I can even remember, uh, you know, selling pool chemicals to people to put in their hot tubs, which was just kind of crazy, you know. Um, and they developed this whole line, especially chemicals that were amazing chemicals. And so that's another way, actually, I connected with Bob because the company that I worked at, I managed a retail company for a long time in Southern California. We were one of the largest sellers of Leisure Time Chemicals. Um, just because we had a huge hot tub in the area where we were at, you know, the hot tubs just took off lots of people. And I spoke to Bob several times on the phone at that time, just as getting information, getting information about the chemicals. And he was so helpful. And I really didn't know him that well, you know, but it just something drew me to him. And he had mentioned to me at one point, I remember when we were talking about spa chemicals, and he had mentioned that he was going to be teaching a water chemistry class at the Western Pool and Spa Show in Pasadena at the time. And I'm like, okay, I'm there. I'm, I'm going to that because I need that. And that was really kind of my first sort of seeing Bob, seeing him teach. And it was so revolutionary. It's so, I was like, man, this is information, you know, because I've gone to other things before, uh, a few, but it was like, uh, you know, it's these guys that are like academia, and it was like they're speaking to academia, you know. So you got a guy with his back turned and he's writing these chemical equations on a whiteboard and going blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I don't get anything out of this, you know. But Bob's class was the first class I went to where I was like, man, and, you know, this guy, like he's got it. He knows it, you know, and this is helpful to me. And I was able right from then to, to go out and start to implement that into my service and so forth. And, and so that was kind of the first thing where, and then I was just a follower from then on out. And Bob was doing classes and doing, doing lots of things. And that, that's back in the, you know, 80s, 70s, early 80s, around in that time as well. And, uh, you know, so we were never really close, close friends. We talked from time to time. The one thing about Bob, which I'll say, and I, 
I said this to someone else earlier today who was asking me about kind of what was one of the main things personally about him that impacted you. And for me, it was, you know, here you had a really intelligent, really smart guy, knew a lot, who was just so gracious and always so open and always so willing to help and to answer questions. And in fact, it was his passion. It was his passion. And it wasn't to, you know, he wasn't trying to show off to academia, like, hey, look how smart I am. And he wasn't speaking academia necessarily. He really cared about the pool professional, really did, even to the point where, and I think we heard it on the tape, you know, he talks about how he went out and worked for six weeks, you know, with a pool pro every day, going and cleaning pools and and learning everything he could learn because he wanted to be on that level. He wanted to be on that grassroots level. He didn't want to be up in the ivory tower, you know. He wanted to be down on the ground, boots on the ground. That's the kind of guy he was. And he, um, he loved the industry. He loved the residential sort of backyard side of that industry. And he loved educating the pool pros. That was his passion. He carried that through throughout his 48 years in the industry with the classes he taught. And then, you know, he went on from there to uh, getting connected with IPSA and writing the IPSA manuals. Uh, Again, just to educate, you know, the pool service tech pro and uh, give them that information. And uh, then he did so much. And then, of course, uh, 10 years ago, eight years ago or so, um, I guess what, 2018 actually, so initiating the Pool Chemistry Training Institute. And again, uh, it was a passion of his because he saw that, you know, even after all these years and everything, you know, there really wasn't a specific course for a residential pool tech. I mean, you had a lot of these other classes, you had like CPO, things like that. And, you know, but CPO, you know, didn't really focus on the residential pro. And CPO is a lot of information if you're running, you know, a commercial, big commercial aquatic facility, but it's about 20% water chemistry, you know, and, and Bob really had the passion that what the backyard pro needs to know is they really need to know the chemistry and they need to know the chemistry to help them be more efficient to help them save costs, to help them save time, and to help them to, you know, um, serve their customers better, have better pool quality, safer. He was so concerned about safe water in the backyard. And not everybody was, but Bob really was. He really was concerned about things being done right and things being done safely for people in homes and residences using backyard pools. And so, you know, that was his passion. That was his driving force his whole life. I saw him, I mean, you know, you hear his story. The guy was a Green Beret. The guy was an athlete. The guy was a Green Beret. You know, the guy uh, went hunting the acreage of Georgia, did just all riding motorcycles across the country. and, And I knew him sort of in that era and that he was a charismatic and a just a strong guy and then to kind of see him later in his life where about 10 years ago he developed this disease this lung disease that he had you know you see a guy who at one time was just so strong and so powerful so charismatic and then now he's riding around on scooters at shows you know and everything and it was a little disheartening I will say but the other thing is it was also very encouraging for me to see that here's a guy that was struggling physically but you know, he never complained. 
I never heard him once complain about it. He might have mentioned it or said, hey, I've kind of got this thing, but he never complained about what was going on. And it was always the opposite. He was, no matter, I could tell no matter how he was feeling, he was out there and he still wanted to get in front of people. He wanted to talk with people. He wanted to help people. That was his whole thing. And, you know, he, uh, in September of this year, he came to the Pool Industry Expo PIE show. He wanted to be there. And I even tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> I said, you know, you really don't need to come, Bob, and you don't need, you know. And we tried to set up a class, and the class wasn't really, we didn't get the sign up, or that didn't really happen. But he was like, no, I still want to come. I still want to come. And I had had a couple of classes that I was doing, you know, through Hasa and chemistry classes. And he said, you know, um, I'll come help you, you know. And I was like, yeah, great. That's fantastic. And that was Bob. He didn't care if he got the accolades. He didn't care if he got the glory. He just wanted to be there. He wanted to do something. He wanted to help. You know, it was just amazing. You know, the guy, I know the guy wasn't feeling well, but, you know, he hopped on a plane from Lima, Peru with his wife, flew up, got into Monterey, and I picked him up and drove him around, got him around, got him to the show and that kind of thing. And again, just he was excited to be there, talking with everybody he could. He was in our booth, in the Hassa booth, and he's answering questions. He's answering chemical questions from, from guys just coming up, you know. And of course, people there know him because the guy was a legend, and he taught there for so long. That was my last time really being with him. And I'm so grateful that we had that time because I learned a lot more about Bob. I learned more about his service in the green beret I, <laughs> he he showed me his wound that he got from the bayonet from hand-to-hand -hand combat you know and just to be with him be with him and, and for that time really meant a lot to me and so i think out of all this my tribute or, and my biggest thing to bob is you know first of all the guy gave 200 300 percent always all the time he had a passion for this industry, and whether people agreed with him or disagreed with him or whatever, you can't deny the guy had a love and a passion for the people in this industry, and he showed it every day of his life. And again, being one of the most smartest, just really intelligent guys that I know, he was also one of the most gracious, one of the most open, um, friendly, down-to-earth people. I could call him at any time, and it was never an inconvenience to him. And uh, I really love that about him. And uh, I'm really going to miss that from that standpoint. Absolutely. And I agree. And I have to thank you, Terry, for introducing me to Bob, because you were the one that, you know, we were having our conversations and you're like, you need to talk to Bob. And Zach, I don't know if you remember, I recorded a little video that I posted on Instagram when I originally talked to Bob and said, hey, we do this podcast. We would love to have you on. And he's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. I posted a story on Instagram, super excited because here's Bob, here's this legend on water chemistry, everything that I've ever heard, the books, the IPSA training, all that is this guy by the name of Bob Larry, and he's actually picking up the phone to call me to talk to me. Like, to me, it was like, who am I, right? Why is he going to want to? And he was exactly how you say, Terry, he was very gracious. He was always very proper. He was always very respectful. And even if people disagreed with him, he never took it personal. He was just like, look, that could be their opinions and I'm okay with that and I'm not going to be disrespectful. And it just showed his true character. 
I'm excited to be able to say it, that he treated me as a friend and he told me a couple of times and said, you know, Edgar, you are my friend. And that mm -hmm. kind of meant a lot to me, especially coming yeah. from Bob. And we would have a lot of conversations where we would just kind of call each other and just talk about random stuff for an hour. Yeah. But the fact that he did go on our podcast on a monthly basis mm -hmm. and he didn't make any money out of, out of that. You know, he would come on the Instagram lives. He would answer everybody's questions. And it got to the point where people are just sending us questions all the time. Like all the pool pros are like, wow, you know, we're going to get Bob to answer the questions was huge. And I think for a guy that spent 48 years in the industry, that just tells you where his passion is. Because you listen to his life, Terry, he could have done, he could have gone in any other direction. The guy oh, was sure. so very smart. He chose the pool industry. And then not only that, it's what kind of fires up me and John and, and Zach, you know, that he was so dedicated to the pool pro. And we saw that and we see that as well. We've talked about it. And that's why some of our fire is that exact same fire that he had, that it's, it's the pool pro. Forget about the big companies. Forget about, you know, building. Forget about doing it. it it's the guy that goes into the backyard to service the pools, those are the guys that we need to help. So I was very blessed to be able to know Bob, to be able to share a relationship with him and a friendship. And so he will definitely, definitely be missed. And and we miss him already on the podcast. We, we talk about it all the time. Like we would have him on once a month and, and that void is just there. And if I may say so, him doing uh, those podcasts and the Instagrams, I think at the point in his life of doing those, that was so meaningful to him. I know that was so meaningful to him, especially from the fact of you know, when his health started to suffer a little more and, you know, he's down in Lima, Peru, which, you know, I, there's his humor, too, because remember, you know, hello from Lima, Lima Peru, Peru. <laughs> you know, and it was just a funny thing, you know, but but I got to tell you, you know, here he was. He was down there. He couldn't get into doing the things he really loved to do. And so I think that was a really important and a really meaningful part and chapter of his life for him to be able to have this vehicle uh, through the Pool Nation podcast where he still could relate to the Pool Pro. He still could feel like, hey, I'm contributing something. Hey, I'm helping these guys and gals, um, you know, and I know that that meant the world to him. And I even know because when I talked, first talked to him about this thing and I told him, he jumped right on it. He was like, oh yeah, I'll do that, <laughs> you know? And I said, okay, this is a good, you know, this was a good marriage to put together. So I really appreciate you reaching out and, and doing that. And I know it meant so much to him. Yeah, it definitely, you know, meant to us. And, and he kind of became one of us. We joke around about it. Oh, yeah. I, jo I, joke with, <laughs> I joke with John all the time because he would, like, bust John's chops. And I yeah. was like, John, he likes you better than he likes me because he's always <laughs> busting your chops and he doesn't do that to me. And, we, you know, we kind of used to joke back and forth. And John was like, hey, that's true, right? He was messing with me about the mic not being on and being muted and not being able to yeah. manage the mic. And so, sure. Um, and that was but, him, you know. I mean, the guy was... You know, he's he was gracious. He was friendly. He was down to earth, and, and he he just he had a great sense of humor. Um, and you knew if he was humoring you that then you were in. You you were a friend, you know. So, yeah. If I had to pick one word to describe Bob, he would be the perfect person to describe as a legend. He really was a legend in every yeah. aspect of the word. Everything that he did, his character, you know, his passion for what he did, and and all that. So he'll be definitely very 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 much missed by us here at the pool nation podcast but his legacy uh, will will carry on 
Yes. And then, you know, uh, Terry, continue. why don't you talk about what it is that we're going to do next year for the Pool Nation Awards? So, yeah, I think it was really fitting. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting that when we had that Pool Nation Awards, what, what, that was Wednesday, the, the night of the 17th. And here we were honoring Bob with that Lifetime Achievement Award, which was so well-deserved. And uh, it was within, within hours of after that time that he you know, that he left us. So uh, it was kind of fitting, I think, or it's just, I think I had a good feeling about that, that we were able to do that. So I think it was just also fitting that since he was the first recipient and just with everything he's contributed and to keep his legacy alive and, and just in honor and in memoriam of Bob, that that award now is going to be called the Bob Lowry Lifetime Achievement Award. We're super thrilled and it couldn't have fit better. And um, I, you know, I think God has a bigger plan and, and everything was the way he wanted it to be. Yeah, um, yeah. It was amazing to hear that in the 48 years that he hadn't been celebrated yeah. for all the things and he, he hadn't been recognized, but it was very passionate to him that it was the pool pros that shows yeah. that award yeah. more than anything else. It was the pool pros, the guys that he served his life for were the yeah. ones that were recognizing him. I think it's really because, you know, he didn't really seek that he never really sought that he bob wasn't about you know the accolades and awards or whatever like he never really went went after that per se you know and so i think also that meant a lot to him because it wasn't something he really sought but yet it was something that you guys did and it, it was a natural sort of occurrence people obviously all felt that you know yeah this guy deserves this you know and so i think that meant a lot to him as well you know so. We'll definitely need to keep that alive, and yeah. next year's will be bigger and better. Yes, we're shooting yeah. to be bigger and better next year. So in, we're, in we're looking excited to that, and in Vegas. So yeah, yeah. A lot of people are definitely already reaching out because that's one of our bigger markets that they all sure. want to come out. And uh, so Terry will have to do something special with we that will. award. We will. And what we will have to do, and I'm going to put you on the spot here on the podcast so we can <laughs> have it recorded, Zach. But <laughs> we will have to have you talk about that and be the one that comes up to present you know whoever we bring next sure. yeah well, in, I'd be in a tribute to, to yeah. in, in a tribute to bob so sure sure yeah i'd love to do that um absolutely definitely so guys we hope that you've enjoyed the two series podcast the life of bob we will definitely do our best to keep his name you know up there and alive so we've hoped you enjoyed this podcast and we will catch you on the next one thanks guys thanks Bye. Thanks for listening to the Pool Nation podcast, a member of the Pool Nation family. You can listen to us live every Friday here at 9 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Central, and 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. You can find us at Pool Nation or PoolNationPodcast.com, on Facebook, or on Instagram at Pool.Nation. And to find more info about Pool Invoice, the billing software built specifically for the pool industry, go to PoolInvoice.com. Before you go, this is what the pool industry has been waiting for. PoolManUniversity.com. It's the first platform dedicated to learning the swimming pool service and repair industry. A pool service community where you can connect and find videos on business, service, water chemistry, and repairs. See you there at PoolManUniversity.com.